The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a family-friendly celebration of geekdom by father-daughter ISS astronauts. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and I'm joined, as always, by my daughter. Hola, hola. And we are two generations of geek. This is episode 15, Geeky About Gravity, and we'll be talking about the film Gravity with Thomas D. Jones, actual space shuttle astronaut. We'll learn what the movie got right and wrong about working in low Earth orbit from someone who's really been there. But first, I want to remind our listeners to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and visit generationsgeek.com, which provides handy links to all of our shows on the Chronic Rift Network. Send any questions to thegeeks at generationsgeek.com. Okay, before we bring on our guest, let's talk a little bit about what we thought of the movie, and as always, with spoilers. But you have to say it like River Song. You'll have to say it like River Song. Spoilers. I can't. Oh, God. <laughs> that was close enough, I think. So what was your first impression of Gravity? I, I liked it. I felt like the beginning and the end of the movie were cut off. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so it felt a little uh, short to me, even though it was kind of a long film. I understand that. I loved it, but I understand completely what you're saying. And some of that we'll talk about when we discuss it with Tom. As soon as the stuff started happening, it just blew me away. I, it, was, it was such an immersive experience. Yeah, it was really, yeah. And I found it to be a, a great ride. It was just an adventure film. Yeah, but, very. But when you talk about the beginning and ending being cut off... To me, you're talking about, well, in the beginning, you're talking about the lack of character development. You don't really know these people at all. It just kind of gets right in the action. and world building. And I know, I know you, you always say there doesn't need to be any world building since it's in our world, yeah. but I still want it there. I get what you're saying. I don't think world building is the right word, but you're, you're talking like about character. Like beginning montage. You're, yeah. You're, you're talking about basic story development and character development. And I've never felt really frightened by space because we've been watching Star Trek for so long. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there's even that episode of Voyager where Tom and Bolana are like in spacesuits and just kind of like floating in the mm-hmm. middle of nowhere. And that just seems super relaxing to me. Like I remember because I was watching the episode in bed and I was like, oh man, that'd be but so this... awesome. So I just like closed my eyes and I pretend I was yeah. and like fell asleep like right away. But this brings you but the real danger. Like, terrifying. Yeah, this is the real, this is the reality of how dangerous the environment is. It was making me nervous is. too because all the trailers were like stuff blowing up. And so then at the beginning when he's zooming around in his jetpack, jetpack mm-hmm. he like is getting farther and farther away. And I'm like, stop, get, get, st- you can stop going so far away. Oh my God. Yes, it, uh, it's very visceral. You really feel it. And we just saw it in a regular, our neighborhood theater. We didn't see it in 3D but it's still, IMAX it's still or anything. a pretty big screen. Yeah, but I mean, it, I, I wonder what the difference would be for, for a film like this, that 3D might have really added yeah. a lot more visceral impact to, to get that sensation that you are in space. Because there's a couple of shots in there where I think you really feel it. It, it yeah. captures the isolation when she sort of spins out into the darkness. Oh, God, yeah. She just goes on the other side. The, it it gets across like, that yeah. sense of aloneness that you usually don't see in a film. I don't think we need to say a whole lot more about yeah, the film we'll because we'll be talking about it more in depth when we bring on Tom. 
But what we do need to add is you have to track down on the interwebs a short film called Anangak, which I'm sure I've just mutilated the pronunciation. But there's a scene in the film where the Sandra Bullock character accidentally picks up someone on Earth that she can't understand. And she has a conversation with him. She can hear his baby, hear his dogs barking. The son of the director of the film, who also co-wrote Gravity with his father, he directed a short film that shows the other side of that, this Inuit fisherman that she talks to. What did you think of that short film? It was good. Because in the movie, it makes it seem like he's in his home, mm-hmm. and he's like with his baby and his family and his dogs, and they're all just kind of cozied up. This puts a whole new perspective. Yeah, because he's out on the ice. He's out in the middle of nowhere, and so it's very interesting. There's very interesting parallels, because he and his family are in one of the most isolated places on Earth, just as Sandra Bullock's character is so isolated in space. They're both very alone and in hostile environments, but... He's on Earth, and she's, you know, in the spacecraft that's (laughs) about to re-enter. And in some ways, it had a lot more emotional context to it than the full-length film did. Because seeing him with his family and the dogs allowed for a very, uh, for a more human connection with him than you had with the people in the spacesuits and the space shuttle and Mm -hmm. stuff. But So it's a brilliant companion piece, well worth seeing. Apparently... They originally shot it just thinking this will be a great extra on the on the disc when it's released, and then they were so pleased with it they started showing it around, and now I guess it's uh, could be end up being nominated for an Oscar for short film, and so it's uh, yeah track it down, Google it, kids. Tom, good morning. Welcome back to Generations Geek. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. Our pleasure. We're very excited to talk to you about this. Uh, so, first off, did you like it just as a movie? Yes, I really did. I thought it was a very good storyline, and I thought that the the survival story, the central element of the film, one person's struggle against uh, the forces of space to sur- and trying to survive and get back to Earth, I thought that was very compelling. So did I. It was very... Uh, I thought it was very engaging as a a thrill ride, you, you know, it, it was convincing, overall very convincing to me as a lay person about the environment of low Earth orbit. Now, from you, a person who's actually been there, overall, what sort of a rating would you give it? Oh, I, I agree with all the people going to see the movie. I think it uh, merits four stars, and uh, it's, it's really probably one of the best space movies made since 2001, A Space Odyssey, if not the best. And it's a combination of two things, I think. One is the absolute hyper-realism of the visual treatment of the film. Uh, they got all of the appearances of the spaceships uh, most of the details of inside the space station, what the Earth looks like from space especially was was very compelling. So it, it came closest to what the real view of an astronaut is. I thought mm-hmm. that was number one. And then number two, I thought that the movie paid a lot of attention to the environment of freefall and weightlessness and orbiting the Earth. And instead of simulating it with um, a blue screen and people hanging from wires and pretending to float, 
um, they did that digitally. And so all of the weightless things that you see in this movie uh, replicate weightlessness through uh, conjuring up the physics equations in the computer that show how objects would move realistically in freefall. Mm -hmm. And they got, it, they got it exactly right. It was a very compelling to watch tethers and tools and things drift around and, and wiggle and, and uh, undulate in freefall. Yeah. That was very much uh, uh, accurate. One of my first question is in those opening scenes when we first see Sandra Bullock's character working on the Hubble, and the Clooney character is zipping around testing out a new uh, EVA pack of some sort. As a layperson who has a smattering of uh, knowledge about space, the movement of the jetpack seemed a little bit too fluid. He was like arcing around in all these perfect circles, spinning around the spacecraft. Well, that is one place where the the analogy to real realism broke down. Um, <laughs> you know, the um, the jetpack would never have been flown so casually and so swiftly around an operating spaceship and the yeah. Hubble telescope, especially, which is. <laughs> you know, a, a multi-billion dollar spacecraft. You wouldn't turn your back on it. You wouldn't be flying backwards, uh, you know, with that jetpack, not knowing what was behind you. Yeah. Uh, you would be very, very worried about running into something that was extremely valuable. And then besides that, uh, jetpacks don't move so quickly. Um, he had, you know, in the movie, he had very powerful rocket thrusters that were just zipping him around. Mm -hmm. And he also had the ability to uh, fly in a curve, yeah, uh, which isn't realistic. You know, you have to basically fly in a straight line, then correct your trajectory, and then move in another straight line segment, yeah. and then another and another, and you gradually zero in on your target. You just don't have that kind of control of banking like an airplane or or moving in a smooth curve like an airplane would. So, you know, that was one thing that they probably just didn't have experience with from anything real to model. Mm -hmm. And so they just invented that. So, yeah, the Buck Rogers jetpack was way outside <laughs> of what we really have today, and it didn't move realistically. That threw me a little bit. But then, very quickly, everything else about that scene really puts you in that environment. And when the debris came in and started piling into the shuttle and really inflicting catastrophic damage, I was emotional. It was so realistic. Watching a shuttle get destroyed like that was, it was almost like I was watching it for real. I was kind of surprised how quickly I had emotionally invested in that. And I think it's just because of my lifelong love of the space program. But, you know, it was almost like watching one of the shuttle disasters over again for me. I was just, you know, tensed in my seat. Uh, did you have any sort of visceral reactions like that? Well, it was very powerful emotionally because all of these worst case scenarios that you might uh, think up for how a shuttle mission or a space flight could end in disaster all were happening at one time in this movie, basically. Uh, you know, you were, you were being cast adrift at the same time that your home in space was being destroyed. And so you have this terrible sense of being torn away from your comfortable home in space, and everything familiar is gone, and now you're instantly thrust into this survival situation, which runs throughout the rest of the movie. So it was a very effective uh, way of, of kicking off this avalanche of disasters, let's say, throughout the rest of the movie that, that Sandra Bullock and George Clooney have to deal with. Now, that's you know, way beyond what astronauts train for. You don't train for catastrophes, because we recognize you can't live through some of those situations, so why practice dying? You don't do that. Mm -hmm. So you practice to fix small things that could potentially lead to 
something catastrophic later on and head, head those disasters off at the pass. So no, we don't practice you know, the destruction of your spaceship and being cast adrift with no way to get back home because that's just completely unrealistic and there's really not much you can do there anyway. Yeah. But you do know in your mind that you can come adrift, that the shuttle can be hit by debris, that you can have a fire in the space station, and that you can lose pressure inside your spacesuit or your spacecraft. So all of those things you know, are realistic, and, uh, but we hope that we've designed our mission plans and our vehicles such that they would never realistically happen. And as you've seen in the, in the two shuttle accidents that we've had, they were always very subtle uh, technical failures that led to a catastrophe. And that's just a, um, maybe a realistic lesson from this movie is that small things like a satellite collision far away can actually cascade and do you in even though you think there's no, there's no immediate danger from something like that. In a situation like that, how much would uh, mission control be keeping uh, the astronauts up to date on, on everything that's happening, on potential problems? It's true that when we have a debris situation or a space junk situation that might threaten the shuttle or the space station, the mission control would give you some warning. Everything they got from NORAD and the tracking information that they got from the Air Force about a, space, a piece of space debris would be relayed to the crew immediately. And so that happened to me while I was in space several times where we get a notice that there was a potential for a, uh, a small chance of a collision in the coming 24 hours. And they would keep an eye on it and they would keep running their computer predictions. And if the debris was supposed to come within uh, range of the shuttle, uh, within a certain specified box of given dimensions, mm -hmm. usually about half a kilometer uh, around the shuttle or so. If it was going to predicted to go through that box, then they would call for a maneuver. Uh, and they, that's so you would avoid what we call the conjunction mm -hmm. when two celestial objects come uh, into close alignment. And we did that on one or two occasions. Then, of course, on many other missions, uh, we've had to move the shuttle and even sometimes the space station. Um, you know, they were, that was a very violent uh, end to the space shuttle Explorer in the movie. It doesn't take all that kind of violence to do in a space shuttle. You know, one uh, hit from a, an object the size of a pea uh, smacking into the shuttle's cabin at hypervelocity would blow a hole in the cabin and you could lose everybody on board. Uh, if there wasn't an easy way to patch the hole immediately. Uh, or another piece of debris could strike a vital system in the propulsion system, for example, and set off an explosion. Uh, or you could ruin the heat shield and not be able to come back home. So, so these are dangers that probably aren't so dramatically depicted as they were in the movie, but ones that we really had to deal with. And so what the filmmakers did, though, they would just telescope to the time scale for one of these disasters getting to you yeah. and affecting you. And they also telescoped and concentrated the, the danger is to multiply them and, and, and make the sudden uh, development of this survival story much more dramatic. George Clooney eventually uh, rescues uh, Sandra Bullock from being uh, tossed out into space, which was also, I thought, very effectively done. It, it really got across the, the uh, sense of uh, isolation that she had. But so George is able to grab her, and they go back to the shuttle. When they get back to the shuttle, and they're like, you know, kind of like bodies strewn places, um, it just seemed like they were kind of frozen. Uh, did that seem realistic to you? I guess I should say I don't know what <laughs> bodies look like after some <laughs> astronaut has died in space. You know, we nobody's got to look at people who've been decompressed to the point of death and 
you know, I'm sure that there have been tragic accidents where people examined people after accidents like that in the aerospace business over the last 50 years. But, you know, no astronauts have been recovered after any, going through anything like that because we, uh, well, even, yeah, even the Russians who died in 1970, 1970, I think it was, on the space station, um, they oh, came yeah. back home and as their Soyuz reentered, they decompressed and then their ship carried them automatically back home. And so they found their bodies on the ground. I don't think that they were uh, tremendously traumatized. They were they had just suffocated. Um, and yes, there are there's you know fluids would bubble out of your body and things like that. Um, but I think you would just um, uh, experience this massive failure of your lungs and the fluids in your lungs, and you'd very quickly suffocate. So perhaps it's a, a realistic depiction. I'm sure that the movie makers talked to some people who could perhaps tell them medically about that phenomenon. But yeah, it was, it was just scary enough the way it was, wasn't it, um, to find those people lurking in the shadows of the shuttle cabin. And these, of course, uh, what would have really struck you was that these are your friends. And yeah. a minute before they were alive, and now you're seeing them a few minutes later and they're gone. So um, I had much the same reaction from a distance when we lost the shuttle Columbia and my seven friends disappeared and I saw the, on the TV broadcast the fireballs coming in over Texas and you realized, oh my gosh, uh, you know, contained in that light show over uh, northeast Texas are my friends. Yeah. And that's very sobering. As a person who's invested in the space program from the outside, to this day I, I get shivers when I think about the loss of either of them, you know, and it's one of those things where you just remember where you were. Well, that fireball scene near the end of the movie where uh, uh, Sandra Bullock's character is coming home in the uh, Shenzhou. Yeah. Uh, that reentry of debris from the space station was very much modeled after what we saw with the Challenger uh, yeah. debris coming back into the atmosphere. So that was very reminiscent and struck a chord with me. This brings us to my next question. So they then go from the destroyed shuttle to the ISS. You already commented earlier that his jetpack was a bit Buck Rogery. They were able to zip from the shuttle to the space station pretty quickly. When Clooney tethers her to his spacesuit, he said something like she couldn't be that close, and I was like, but then wouldn't it be just like more awkward to try and fly around with somebody like bouncing around off the tether behind you than having her like hang onto your foot or something? Well, the filmmakers really went out there with that jetpack and all of the things that it could do. It had a bottomless fuel tank. That's the first yeah. thing. Uh, it had uh, much more powerful jets than would be needed for a real jetpack. You don't need to move that fast and you don't need to have the the oomph in the thrusters that was displayed in the movie so you know ella you're right you can hang on to some part of his body uh to uh, be carried along but then that upsets the center of gravity that the thrusters are designed to fire through so he'd fire the thrusters and because somebody was hanging on to him he'd start to tumble and had to correct that so rather than deal with the extra uh, the dis disruption of upsetting his center of gravity i think Realistically, they would have tethered somebody some distance away. Now, because he had such powerful rockets on this, this MMU, uh, then that had to place Sandra Bullock some distance away so she wasn't um, plumed, as we say, by the, the rocket <laughs> exhaust. So to keep her safe, they <clears throat> had her hang out on the end of the tether. And there, yes, there would be some kind of dynamics that would have to be dealt with from hauling around somebody like that. I did that on the space shuttle where we practiced 
hauling a, an incapacitated astronaut back into the airlock from the far end of the payload bay. So I was tugging on the tether to, to pull my friend along, and he was just pretending, of course. But that's quite a big inert balloon, and so every time you tug on it, he comes drifting towards you, and if you're not careful, he'll bang into your helmet or drift overhead and pull you off to the other side. So you have, you know, we had to learn to deal with those dynamics just as they did in the movie in a, to a larger and more dramatic uh, way. So it's something, it's a scenario that's plausible, mm -hmm. but they assaulted it with so much unrealism in the MMU and in the, um, the, uh, the speed and, and power of those rocket thrusters that they, they made it overly dramatic. But it's a story, and they're trying yeah. to advance you know, the difficulties they're faced with. Yeah, and it did seem to me that they did a good job of capturing the physics of that tether and how she bounced around. And uh, That's what I mentioned before. That I think they actually programmed little uh, infinitesimally small pieces of a tether in the computer so that they would all react to being subjected to forces like that. And yeah. I thought that was a, that was a really uh, neat technical accomplishment to show how if a force is applied to some free-falling or weightless object that it reacts in this way under the, gu under the guidance of Isaac Newton. And they managed mm -hmm. to build that into their, um, their dynamic uh, motions in the uh, computer. I'm still picturing you tugging on, a, <laughs> on, on another astronaut on a tether in the, uh, in the shuttle. <laughs> yeah, well, we have video of that somewhere. And um, it was like, it was basically like tugging on a balloon that was floating up above you. You sort of yeah. just pretended that person would float there, and then you would move along the handrail, give the thing a slight tug, and he would come towards you, and then you'd move again, and you know, you'd try to avoid being jerked by the, the tether. But he had the mass of about 400 pounds, and mm -hmm. uh, that inertia is present even though he's weightless. So you had to mind this balloon that was coming along with you, and... Uh, this was the case where we would be practicing for somebody who'd had a heart attack or had um, lost pressure in their suit and they'd lost consciousness, and you had to hustle them back to the airlock to try to repressurize mm -hmm. um, and so or get them treatment. So you really wanted to make make it uh, a quick journey down the 60 feet of the cargo bay, but you also couldn't let this guy go completely out of control and start pulling you in a different direction and making the job too difficult. And there was a lot of muscular effort involved as well as some technique and skill involved in guiding this mass slowly and gently towards the airlock. Everyone thinks about space, you know, they think about weightlessness. And I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, things still have mass. And when you start trying to wrestle things about, it still can be a lot of exertion. It took all of the physical strength I had out there to shove my partner, Bob Kirby, into the airlock. Uh, mm -hmm. you, 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 what you lack is leverage. You lack um, a way to anchor yourself so that you can really push on them with all of your muscles. Yeah. And so what I had to do was hang on to a, a handrail near the airlock, plant my boots on the lining of the shuttle's payload bay so I could have a tripod to stand on, mm -hmm. three points of uh, resistance, and then use that to react against Bob's mass to get him into the airlock. Without that, you can't do that job while you're floating. You have to anchor yourself in a solid way so you can exert some uh, force on his body. And to to learn that while we were out there doing the spacewalk uh, was very tough. We tried to do that in the water tank, but you just don't have those realistic elements of the cargo bay to practice mm -hmm. on typically. And so we had to do it for real and learn it. And he did it for me twice, and I did it for him twice. And it was quite uh, uh, physically taxing. I think that's when, out of all, all my 19 hours of spacewalking, my heart rate spiked the most, and my breathing and cooling requirements in the suit went up to the, to the, to the max. So, um, you know... 
I think in the movie they tried to uh, show the difficulties that they'd have of towing somebody along who was a non-cooperative target, as we say. Yeah. And uh, um, one more thing about the jetpack. Uh, it does not, it would never have enough thrust to go 100 miles over to another space station <laughs> or even one mile to another space station. That's yeah. just completely unrealistic. What they did was they did a very good job of replicating the motion of things close to you in free fall and how they would drift and float about. That was very realistic, just like I would have seen it on a spacewalk. But when you try to move a mile in space, um, if you try to do it just by looking out there and aiming towards your target and thrusting in that direction with your uh, limitless supply of fuel, you will wind up doing exactly the opposite of what really happens. If you thrust towards that target, you'll wind up going to a higher orbit with that mm -hmm. extra velocity, and then mm -hmm. now he's your target's in a lower orbit, which is the inside of the racetrack, and they'll pull away from you, and pretty soon you're falling behind. So you're getting farther away when you thrust towards a target that's any more than a few dozen yards away from you. They had to invent this whole science of rendezvous back in the 1960s, during the space race. Um, and in the Gemini program, the early Gemini flights, they were launched off from Cape Canaveral and they were supposed to practice rendezvousing with the rocket booster that had put them into orbit. And it was a few hundred yards away. So they st started firing their thrusters to get towards that booster. And they were at the point of distance where the celestial mechanics effects were operating like Isaac Newton says they would. And so as they fired their thrusters, they sped up and they moved into a higher orbit and they fell farther behind. And, they were hosing out all their fuel trying to reach what looked like an obvious way to get there. And then, you know, as we got more sophisticated in our rendezvous planning, people told them, okay, you know, if you're outside of 100 yards, you know, the intuition does not work anymore. Mm -hmm. You've got to actually have a calculator or a slide rule or a checklist or a computer to tell you which way to point and fire your rockets in order to, to make it most efficient. And so we made some mistakes early in the Gemini program where we failed to do these rendezvous exercises, and it wasn't until... Gemini 6 and 7, where they actually managed to catch up with each other and, and rendezvous. And then they could fly within a foot of each other. These two you know, several-ton spacecraft could get within a foot of each other very safely and controllably after they trained the pilots how to maneuver properly. And um, you just can't just wing it. <laughs> and in fact, um, there's a great story from the shuttle era in the late 1990s when a crew tried to go after a, a satellite that they had tried to snare, and it got bumped away, and it was tumbling away a few yards from them, and they tried to move in and zap it and grab it without um, relying on some advice from mission control and setting up the rendezvous with a checklist and so forth. And just tr trying to wing it, they hosed off a lot of fuel and they never managed to snare it. And uh, finally, mission control had to tell them, stop, back away, and we'll replan the entire approach. And, and they got it the next day. I had one question I wanted to go back to. When you took your turn playing the the uh, unconscious astronaut, <laughs> what did that feel like, just hanging there limp and being yanked around on the tether? Well, it was very relaxing after all the exertion of trying to <laughs> shove my partner in the airlock. So you, you said, oh, boy, they owe me this to just relax for about 20 minutes. And so uh, all you did was just go limp, and uh, it was a very nice chance to catch your breath and relax a little bit. And I had my camera out so you know we could try to take pictures, uh, but I wasn't supposed to help in any way. I was just to pretend that I was unconscious. So... You know, we called it the, um, oh, I think it was just called the incapacitated crew member uh, test. Um, but we'd call it the dead man exercise because yeah. that seemed what it was like. Um, yeah. And, you know, they didn't want us to talk about that over the radio, but that's the way we termed it in our training. 
So it was a chance to just relax and enjoy the environment. But unfortunately, if you're just letting yourself go limp, you know, your body might not be pointing at the right direction to see the earth and the sun and, mm-hmm. and the, the um, scenery out there. You know, if you're just happening to look at uh, the back of your friend's backpack, it's not a very exciting view for 15 or 20 minutes. So it was a sense, a, a sense relaxing, but also a wasted opportunity for sightseeing. You mentioned uh, that they didn't want you to, to uh, talk about a dead man test over the radio. That brings up another issue from the uh, film. Uh, George Clooney's character likes to tell ridiculous stories. Would Mission Control let him ramble on in, in some of the ways that he was doing? There were several astronauts who saw the movie with me, and were during the movie at various times, we're all nudging each other with our elbows, saying, <laughs> ha, 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 this would never happen. Uh, one example was that you would never tie up the radio channel with that kind of useless chatter, even though it might be fun to talk about. But no, Mission Control would never be so uh, uh, undisciplined as to let somebody yak for five minutes about their 67 Corvette or some girlfriend in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. Um, you know, that's the kind of story that you share offline. Yeah. Uh, so, and the astronauts and Mission Control are trained to be very efficient with their radio chatter in case. There is something important that has to be gotten over the radio, like a warning about space debris. Uh, another example would be uh, the, their crewmate who is working on the Hubble. After he's finished and they congratulate him, he pushes away from the shuttle and goes to the end of his tether, yeehaw, oh, just yeah, to yeah, celebrate. Yeah. And he goes wanging out there about 20 feet before the tether jerks him to a stop. And I leaned over to my friend next to me and I said, you're fired. Because <laughs> that's the last time that they would let you do anything on a spacewalk. They'd say, you, go back into the airlock and we'll talk about it later. Yeah. And you'd been, you would have been uh, removed from the spacewalk and told to uh, uh, you know, get yourself back in there inside. And that's the last time you'd ever go on a spacewalk. Uh, that kind of undisciplined action uh, is, is going to get you fired. So yeah. you, know, you plan every move so that you are advancing getting the job done and paying attention to safety. And those are the two paramount things, safety and then getting the job done. And anything that doesn't, doesn't contribute to that is unrealistic. When they get to the ISS, and it's kind of a mess there, and the Sandra Bullock character gets entangled in uh, some parachute cords, and their momentum is taking them away from the station, and this is when Clooney sacrifices himself, disconnects from the tether so that he doesn't pull both of them away from the station. He's finally run out of uh, fuel in his bottomless uh, jetpack at that point. The physics of that was tricky. And I, I think the way you were supposed to imagine it was that the parachute cords were stretching along with their momentum and that by him disconnecting, the parachute cords then overcame the m- momentum that she still had and pulled her back I mean, that, that was a complicated physics problem there. Did, did it seem true to you? Did it seem to, to work? You know, at various times during the movie, the, the filmmakers turned off Isaac Newton. And <laughs> they gave up on the realism of how things move in free fall to add dramatic effect. And this was one of those times. Okay. Because what really would have happened was, as they flew past the space station, she got her legs tangled up in the parachute cords, and she went uh, to the end of the, the tension or the slack in the parachute cords cords with Clooney attached to her, and they, they would have been tugged to a halt by the cords, and then the cords, if they had stretched, would have rebounded, and they would have propelled them back towards the space station uh, once they came to the end of the limit of those cords. And so their momentum would have been um, reflected back towards the mm-hmm. space station 
and uh, the stored energy in those cords would have pulled them back in. So there would have been no reason for Clooney to disconnect himself. There was no force possible that would have been tugging him away or stretching Sandra Bullock continually away from the space station. Once the lines had stopped her motion, they would have been recoiling back towards the space station. So that was just a dramatic uh, trick in the movie to cast him loose and leave her alone. Now, later on, when they were showing her trying to back away from the station in the Soyuz, Mm -hmm. and she was tangled up in the parachute cords because it was still attached to her ship, that was done dynamically very well. You know, how it backed away and then rebounded and backed away and rebounded, and then she finally got the hang of it and managed to stabilize herself. So that sequence was very tension-filled and very exciting, Mm -hmm. very accurate. And was it realistic that she was able to uh, open up a few books here and there and suddenly be able to maneuver these various things around? (laughs) No. (laughs) I wish they had had checklists that had such big diagrams and easy-to-follow instructions in real life. Again, it's a dramatic device to show that she had a chance to survive and she could use her ingenuity to get herself out of that problem. So. The whole idea that she had only six months of training was unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody flying, flying on a space shuttle on a critical mission like a Hubble repair would have had years of training, even if she was a specialist uh, focused on one se- uh, remote sensing system on the Hubble. So our payload specialists who made one specialized trip on the shuttle, they would have usually been training for a year or more to get ready for that. And, and they would not have been on a spacewalk. That's not the kind of training they would have gotten. Yeah. But dramatic effect. In some of these things, even as one part of my mind kind of logged them while I was watching the film, they didn't really distract from my enjoyment of the ride. Yeah, nor did it for me. Yeah. No, I really enjoyed the movie, and I just sort of put those things aside and said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll follow up on those over a beer later on. Yeah. Now let's just enjoy the film. Have you ever picked up or have you heard stories of other uh, astronauts picking up communication from Earth. Ham radio, something like that. Yeah, and so would something like that uh, be able to uh, be picked up from low Earth orbit? Possible in a couple of ways. Uh, We often carry the ham radio on the shuttle, and I think the space station has one aboard. And so astronauts could make contact with amateur radio operators around the globe. And so if you just tuned in the frequency with your ham set, you'd be listening to people broadcasting on that frequency. Um, uh, So that's possible. And the other thing is, is that even on the spaceships systems, uh, if you tune in a UHF channel on the, uh, the shuttle radios that were used for short-range communication between spacewalkers and the ship uh, or from the ship to uh, the space station, for example, UHF, VHF frequencies like that, if you tune in there, you might get some interference from broadcasters on the ground. So mm-hmm. we would be flying over Russia often or China, and we would often get um, broadcasts coming through a static where you could make out uh, voices or uh, chattering or some kind of, uh, you know, I wouldn't call it jamming. It was always inadvertent yeah. uh, transmission interference. But, yeah, you'd hear things from the Earth as you flew around. But you would not hear those over the, the prime communications channels up to the mm-hmm. communication satellites, the TDRS, and then back down to the shuttle. Those were chosen on very tight, you know, focused uh, communications links that were free of those interferences. Let's talk about fire in space. This This would... To me, it seems like one of the scariest things that could uh, happen while you're in a little tin can up there. Something starts burning, it's sucking up your oxygen. Did you think that the fire sequence overall was uh, realistic? That was very well done, in particular the uh, depiction of how flames would appear 
here in orbit. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that experiments on the station and on the shuttle before have shown that if you ignite a, a, a source of fuel, that will burn in a little spherical ball of flame. Yeah. Uh, combustion occurring at the center, the glowing gases on the outside. And it will keep going until it exhausts the oxygen where the uh, combustion is taking place. Then it will snuff itself out. So you'll see these little balls of fire drifting around, and then they'll go out as they consume the fuel at the center of that uh, sphere. And the reason it's a sphere instead of a teardrop like a candle flame is because there's no uh, sensation of gravity. Thus, there's no, there's no uh, less dense hot air and denser cold air to stream upwards with the flame and make the flame into a teardrop shape. There's no convection is yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. So without convection, you get these spherical balls of fire. And uh, it is a great fear in orbit because... Uh, you will consume rapidly the oxygen available to keep you alive. Uh, you can also ignite other sources of, of uh, fuel like oxygen canisters or chemicals that are aboard. And, you know, we had a near-fatal fire aboard the Mir space station in 1997 caused by an oxygen generator, a chemical oxygen generator that, that uh, caught fire. And it was such a blowtorch hot flame and it burned for so long that it not only blocked access to one of the Soyuz lifeboats, but it filled the entire cabin of the mirror with thick, choking smoke. Mm -hmm. And it was a very near thing that the crew was able to survive that uh, um, both uh, contamination of their atmosphere plus lack of access to the lifeboat if they'd had ab abandoned the station. Uh, very scary. Read Jerry Lininger's book called uh, Off the Planet for a great uh, depiction mm. of that. Well, I think this brings us up to the final scenes of the film. She gets on to the... Uh, the uh, Chinese station, which is falling out of orbit. And for what reason, we don't know. My impression was that the station had taken damage from the debris field and something had gone wrong there. But, yeah, that was a little glossed over. What, what did you think as you were watching the film? Did you... Um, I thought it was supposed to be implied that it got hit yeah. with some more um, debris... But yeah. I don't know why it, it would have been it, Okay, I'll buy that. It, uh, <laughs> it made for a uh, dramatic shot that as she's getting into the capsule and everything and you get those outside shots. and It's quivering with and the it's air, just, air Yeah, wave. you see the, the panels, you noticed, the solar panels. The solar panels to... were vibrating and the ship was shaking, but it didn't affect Sandra Bullock at all. She was just drifting around as if she was in free fall <laughs> the whole time. So again, they flipped the switch on her and Isaac Newton went away. Yeah. <laughs> And then I think there were two issues with those final scenes that, that stuck out at me. There seemed to be times where the various pieces of the space station were traveling at different speeds. She disconnected the capsule, and then the, there was, you know, there was like stuff shooting past her, as I recall. Yes, right. And, and so some of that stuff got a little muddled, I thought, as far as the, the realism goes. And then we get into the to the, the biggest cheat of the film, the very unbelievably convenient splashdown 20 feet offshore in a lake. <laughs> you have a, a catastrophic coming out of orbit, and you uh, land nicely in a lake, and you just swim up to the beach. <laughs> I think you've said it well. You know, also, um, you know, that Soyuz or Shenzhou would have floated quite well, but of course, to get her out of that situation. They had to light the inside of the capsule on fire, so she had to get out mm -hmm. and open the hatch. So, you know, you're trained in the Soyuz or the Shenzhou var variant of that. 
you're trained on how to do water survival. There's a survival raft and things like that. So even if she'd been far out to sea, she could have made a, a go of it. But the fire forced her to just get out yeah. very quickly. And, and then, and of course, the hatch allowed the ship to flood. And so none of her survival gear was in play. Yeah. So all of that, yeah, very, very unrealistic. Um, but, you know, she's made it 99% of the way home. You're not going to let her go at that point. Yeah. So uh, well, I, yeah, I let's just say that... The, the ocean is three-fourths of the planet, and so you're likely to land out in the middle of nowhere in the ocean. And yeah. that's why we train on yep. the shuttle as well as the, for the space station lifeboats. You've got to train in water survival and how to stay alive for at least 24 hours in the open sea so the rescue forces can get to you. Yeah, I would have much preferred, from, from a realistic standpoint, I would have really much preferred seeing her come down in the middle of the ocean somewhere. But from a writing standpoint... I understand why they took the shortcut so that the, the movie could end quickly and demonstrate that she has survived. Right. Where if they had her d- down in the ocean, then it's like, well, it would have taken hours and hours and hours for people to get there, and then it's like turns mm-hmm. into a sea survival story. And, you know, yeah, it's it, cast away all over again. Yeah, and so I understand why they did it, but it was... Uh, mm-hmm. And it gave her a chance to flop up on the shore like life emerging from the primordial soup and evolving <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. onto dry land. So you get that <laughs> analogy of being reborn or evolving back to a, a land creature, back from a space creature. And so that whole you know, metaphor works pretty dramatically at the end. Yeah, yeah. Then another survival story starts. Where is she? You know, is there anybody around? How is she going to live for the next two days without anything on her body except her cute underwear? You know, it's just all very, uh, <laughs> it's just all very uh, much inviting those kinds of questions. And maybe even a sequel. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> you think although, she'll sign up for another trip? <laughs> although I think in the credits... Uh, it said something about being filmed at some lake in Arizona. So yeah. if we go by that, she very conveniently was in Arizona. But obviously, the, ah. the, the obviously that I'd say I mean, lake they were trying to make the lake like in Arizona that. look like a lake somewhere else. Yeah, because the, it looked kind of jungly. They filmed it there, but it could have been representing any place in the world in a sort of right. semi-tropical environment or something. Um, the other, the one last problem uh, was that. Then after she lands, she looks up and she sees a bunch of stuff burning up in the atmosphere. Well, what was that stuff? One could infer it was just more of the debris coming down, but to me, the way it cut together, it was like she was looking back up at her own space station, but obviously that would have burned up long before she reached Earth since she was parachuting down. It's going in a slower moving spacecraft with a parachute and all. Yeah, so very good. Yeah, Scott, I, I agree with you. That was just uh, thrown in there gratuitously to show, you know, what a what a close call she'd had. Otherwise, yeah. she would have been toast like that debris in the sky. Yeah. So I think they just threw that in there. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a storyteller's uh, domain. You know, the directors are going to yeah. do what they have to to make the story dramatic and heighten the tension and and emotion. And and they did that in several places in the film where they suspended the laws of physics to make that story move along. Uh, but I still walked out, and I saw the movie twice. I, I still walked out both times feeling uh, invigorated about how she had survived and, you know, going, yes, you know, a, a human, a plucky human being made it back to Earth <laughs> despite yeah. all of her, her baggage that she was carrying along. So, you know, I really bought into the a, a ripping good survival story and the ingenuity and uh, determination of one person against insurmountable odds. I thought that, was, that resonated with everybody in the, in the audience I was with. Yeah, I thought it was a great ride. Well, 
thanks so much for uh, coming back on the show. Now we're, we're running out of time with you here, but uh, it was uh, great to talk with you as always. And, uh, you know, fascinating to hear the insights from an actual astronaut about this movie. Well, thanks. And I think that the sequel should be called One-Sixth Gravity or One-Third Gravity. <laughs> it could make it on the moon or Mars and have a similar yeah. good survival story. And uh, if they take the same care that they did with this movie, it's bound to be a visual treat, and I'm sure they'll come up with uh, some great stories to entertain us with. And like I said, going back all the way to 2001 A Space Odyssey, this is the best space movie that I can recall. I'm a, a big fan. Okay, that was our main feature for this episode, but we need to add a little bonus segment. As we were putting the finishing touches on the episode, we went to see the Doctor Who 50th anniversary special, The Day of the Doctor, in 3D on the big screen. What did you think? Oh, of course I loved it. I loved it, too. The constant banter between all the doctors, just, oh my god. They did a great job with that, because it was a little bit of self-parody, you know, they were kind of making fun of themselves, and yeah, we should, you know, spoilers here too, people. Spoilers. Uh, I, I, I really liked it, and... It was very good. When the other doctors started showing up... Oh my gosh. I, and here's the thing, when I was a kid, since I'm from a small town... Doctor Who wasn't on. It was, I had no way of seeing it when I was growing up. And so I have never really watched much classic Doctor Who. But, of course, as a science fiction freak, I've read about it my entire life and have an appreciation for it being a, a historic show in the genre. So even though I've never actually watched, say, an entire Tom Baker episode... I was hugely moved at his cameo. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... And even earlier... It's just so, like, amazing. Even earlier, when they showed just on screens during the big battle over Gallifrey, oh when you just saw gosh. all the doctors on the little screens. And then Capaldi. And then Capaldi's quick Dude, little bit. No, you have that gave no me idea. shivers. You have no idea what Tumblr has been doing. Like, just those <laughs> two seconds, just those two seconds of Capaldi. Of his the, eyebrows. Of his eyebrows. Just the of, two seconds of seriousness that was Capaldi a was just like, like, like there's, I mean, it, I can't even explain it. It's like two seconds and three words, four words. It was and it was very everyone's eff- talking about it and it was it so was very good. effective because it's just like oh god twelve of them and you don't and then no sir all thirteen and then you just see his eyes and everybody in the theater goes ah! yeah oh and it was great because we saw it in a very full theater of Whovians and you never know what's going to happen when you go to one of these special shows if there's going to be a dozen people in the audience or what and this one was packed with people in costume, and they had their sonic screwdrivers and everything, so that was a there fun... Was some, there were some teenagers in front of us that I wanted to be my friends. <laughs> and then... One of them was cosplaying as 10, and then another one had 11 screwdriver, and they were talking to everyone and asking if there were any Daleks in the audience. Yeah, and... it, was a, it was a really great fan audience. I mean, obviously that's what you expect, but 
it, it really had a such a great, it was like a convention kind of atmosphere, just that camaraderie. If you were one of those teenagers at the Egan Theater at 7.30 on Monday, November 25th, <laughs> follow me on Tumblr and then message me, gondorgold.tumblr.com. <laughs> Self-promo. Hashtag. And self-promo. then there was those great uh, two little boys uh, that we saw leaving oh, the theater. Oh, my gosh. They were we like were seven out, or eight I or noticed, something. No, they were, it was 10 I meant 11. Their, I meant their age. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I should have specified. It's easier on the internet because then you, you spell it out and capitalize the yeah. first letter. But um, <laughs> And I saw I saw the older one who was 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I noticed the younger one who was 10. But as soon as I saw 11, I like gasped and like put my hands over my mouth. Because it was like adorable, and we and were in the, the we were in the car yeah, at this point. But that's one, not clear. And then I realized I kind of realized that the little boy dressed as ten had noticed me, but I didn't, I didn't really acknowledge. Like he didn't really. I mean, I didn't really acknowledge it because I was just like talking to you and like stuff. And we were in the car, and I generally think that people can't see me when I'm in the car. And then as they walked past us, I was still fangirling, and he caught my eye and like smiling, like gave me the thumbs up. So I started freaking out. I was like, hi, and, like waved at him. <laughs> If it would have been a convention, he's going be, to be the president we of would the United have, States. We would have, you know, had to beg to take their pictures because they, oh, were, yeah. they were they were great. Yeah. So that was a very fun evening, and the and the theatrical extras were fun. The little introduction mm-hmm. with the doctors that was, that was amazing. And the uh, the thing with what's his name was a little uneven, but there was some fun stuff in it. What's his name? The the warrior. The potato guys. Yeah. <laughs> the potato guys. That's what everybody calls them potato <laughs> They're shaped like potatoes. They are shaped like potatoes. That was a little uneven, but, but there was some funny stuff But I can still say Raxacoracophalibatorius, so you know. And, and what is that? It's a planet. It's a planet. <laughs> then there was the little making of featurette yeah, afterward. It was, after. yeah, it was, it was a great evening. Boy, I'm... I saw a gif where the guy, uh, wherein uh, Moffat is sitting in a chair, and the guy who played uh, Eight like kicks him and he falls over <laughs> and i was like what is even going on anymore all the internet is is doctor who anymore <laughs> that's all the time we have for this episode tune in next month for episode 16 the smog report and i said it right uh right in quotation marks uh we'll be taking we'll be talking about peter jackson's second hobbit movie the desolation of smog remember that generations geek is a part of the chronic rift network which broadcasts through a palantir from minas tirith please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com thanks for listening and come Come back back next time. time Geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny. <laughs>